Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey everybody, this is CJ, your one-man revolution and renaissance man in the new dark age. And this is the Dangerous History Podcast, A History of American Slavery, Part 1. And I'm envisioning this as being approximately a five-part miniseries as of right now, though that might change slightly as we move along. It's going to be in the neighborhood of five episodes. Glad to be back doing another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. I've had things just falling apart every direction it's been rough. I won't bore you with all the details, plenty of, of stuff going on, but I know we all have our problems. I'm sure you do as well, but I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to actually sort of have a voice again after not having one for a long time, thanks to an absolutely nuclear cold that took two weeks to go away and is still, you can probably hear, still racking my vocal cords a bit. But I'm glad to be back and glad to be finally starting this mini series on which I've been working and still am working on research. Um, a huge amount of research for this. It's something I studied a bit in school, but I've been delving into it uh, even more so the past, I don't know, month or two since I, I started working on this series. Over the course of approximately four centuries, from the 15th century to the 19th century, approximately 12 million enslaved Africans, most of them from various areas of West Africa, were shipped across the Atlantic Ocean to destinations in the so-called New World, meaning the Western Hemisphere. They were primarily carried on Portuguese, Dutch, and English ships to colonies not only of those three countries, but also to the New World colonies of France and Spain. For centuries, these slaves and their descendants labored in a wide variety of environments, doing a wide variety of tasks, though the majority, of course, would spend the majority of their time as agricultural laborers producing staple crops on commercial farms and plantations. And basically the difference there is simply one of size. Normally, um, a farm has to be fairly large to qualify as a plantation. 
some of these slaves faced conditions that were more or less bad than others did, but all of them, regardless of how relatively bad or less bad their their conditions and predicament was, all of them faced the dehumanizing reality of being legally considered another person's property. Now, because of this reality, it meant that the states that ruled over the countries and colonies in question would almost always protect the institution of chattel slavery, which of course in practice meant backing the interests of the master class against the interests of the slaves. And slavery cannot and does not exist on a large scale for a long period of time without some sort of state support. It's simply logistically and economically impossible for slavery to work and to be enforced and to be profitable on a large scale for a long period of time without there being a state, at the end of the day, ultimately standing behind the masters, ready to back them up when necessary. Just hypothetically, imagine you were a fairly rich guy with a big piece of land and 200 slaves, and there's no state who's willing to back up your authority over those slaves. How how difficult, how impossible, how unaffordable would it be for you to actually control a couple hundred slaves without there being the state behind you and your slaves knowing at the end of the day that if they don't obey you, sooner or later the state can get involved and will. So the history of slavery is and, and always has been intertwined with the history of states. Not all states have slavery, obviously. I'm not making that claim. And there have been some instances of slaves existing in societies that don't quite yet have states. But again, when we're talking about on a large scale and for long extended periods of time, slavery has to have state support in order to work. Now, as a result of having states backing up the interests and claims of the master class, as a result of this Large-scale overt resistance, by which I mean namely slave rebellions, were nearly always futile and suicidal, because even if you succeeded temporarily in your local area, the state that ruled that territory could, and absolutely would, just keep bringing in more resources and manpower and firepower until they finally crushed whatever rebellion you were crazy enough to try. And for this reason, slaves generally preferred to resist in more small-scale and low-key ways, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. But that was, that was the much more common form of, of resistance. And over the course of the series, I'm sure we'll cover multiple slave rebellions, and we'll also cover some of the ways in which slaves resisted in smaller ways, everything from sort of deliberately sabotaging one's work to playing sick to running away either temporarily or trying for permanent runaway status, and a whole bunch of other things. Even though this form of slavery is long gone, obviously its effects linger on, and so it has importance from that angle. And in addition, I think there are things that we today can learn from slavery, from how it operated, from how the master classes made it work, and also from the ways in which slaves resisted. And then after centuries of this institution being considered the norm in many parts of the Western Hemisphere, finally, over the course of the 19th century, one by one, the states involved in enforcing this institution turned away from it. In most instances, first by phasing out the importation of additional slaves from Africa and then later abolishing the institution itself. The different societies involved took different paths to this destination, but over the course of roughly an 80-year span, slavery, at least as a legally recognized institution and form of property, was eliminated from the Western world. 
over the next several episodes of the Dangerous History Podcast, I'm going to be giving an overview of the history of American slavery, focused mostly, though of course not exclusively, we're going to need global context for this story, but mostly focused on North America. Now, this episode, uh, for, for one, is going to be mostly not, because we're going to be talking about the backstory and origins of transatlantic slavery, but most of the later episodes will be mostly focused on North America. But before we launch into the rest of this first episode on this topic, I do have one Patreon shout out to give, and that is to Andrew. Andrew has been the only awesome individual to step up and help out the Dangerous History Podcast at patreon.com slash profcj since the last episode that I recorded. I wish I had more names to tick off, but Andrew, thank you very much. Remember, it's one of the ways you can help support this show financially. Go over to patreon.com slash profcj. There you can sign up for a per episode donation amount. And if you sign up for any amount per episode of, of donation, I will thank you by name on the next episode that I make after you've signed up. And in addition to that, if you've pledged at least $1 per episode... You will also have access to bonus episodes that are available there to, to my Patreon supporters of a dollar or more per episode and that are available nowhere else. So it's a win-win. You get to help out this show that you enjoy, assuming you enjoy it. Make sure it stays around and keeps improving. I get help with doing that. And then in return, you get a little bit of extra Dangerous History podcast from time to time. By the way, over the next month or a little over a month as I'm doing this mini series on slavery, I am anticipating I'll probably doing one or be doing one or more bonus episodes at Patreon that are related one way or another to this story. And one that I'm already considering is a history of the slave rebellion that really turned into a revolution in Haiti, which is just an incredible story. So look for that to probably be coming out if you're one of my Patreon supporters in the next, I don't know, month or so, give or take. Now let's jump into the rest of the episode. Slavery is central to much of the history of the self-proclaimed land of the free. As historian Peter Colchin points out in his book, American Slavery, 1619 to 1877, quote, Although Americans like to think that the United States was conceived in liberty, the reality is somewhat different. Eight of the United States' first 12 presidents, in office for 49 of the nation's first 61 years, were slave owners. When, beginning about 1830, a small band of abolitionists boldly proclaimed that slavery was a dreadful sin, the majority of Americans, North as well as South, regarded them as fanatics whose provocative rantings threatened the well-being of the Republic." End quote. Fanatics whose provocative rantings threatened the well-being of the Republic Gotta say, it kind of sounds like how some present-day, mainstream, typical people might describe us kooky anarchists and anyone else who opposes the state, doesn't it? By the way, Colchin, as Colchin knows very well, it's just not in the quote that I, that I read to you, slavery also was a massive part of building the early American economy. But slavery wasn't just an integral part of much of American history. In fact, slavery, or something very close to it, such as serfdom or indentured servitude or some other form of unfreedom, has been the experience of much of humankind for much of history, unfortunately. But it's the truth. But slavery and its institutional relatives, its close-kissing cousins, like serfdom and indentured, indentured servitude, have taken many different forms throughout human history in many different times and places and societies. American chattel slavery, which is what we'll be looking at in this series, was a distinct type 
of unfree labor, historically speaking, a distinct species of it, if you will, characterized by a variety of qualities, including its rigid racial aspects relative to some other forms of slavery that have existed in history, and its use primarily for agricultural labor. That's also not universal to all slave societies throughout history. Some slave societies do uh, use their slaves primarily for agricultural labor, but others have not. The context in which this is happening is a term that has been, last few decades, used so much by historians that it's almost become kind of a cliche, and that term is the Atlantic world. And what the Atlantic world is referring to is looking at the time period from, say, the late 15th century until at least about the late 18th century, in which trade routes around and across the Atlantic were opened up for the first time, connecting Western Europe, Western Africa, and the Americas, both North and South, and also the Caribbean islands, connecting all those places together with each other for the first time, really, in history, in in a direct sense of the word connected. And all of the good and bad things that come out of that, and all of the different kinds of interactions between the peoples there, sometimes peaceful, sometimes not, all of the, the spreading of people, of plants and animals, of microbes, of ideas from one region around the Atlantic Ocean to another, and the fact that, especially during this time period from the 15th to the 18th century, these regions are connected politically, not just economically or in terms of cultural interchange. So this is the context in which this institution of American slavery evolves and flourishes. The sort of slavery that emerged in this Atlantic world during this time period was of a particular type. In it, slavery was primarily defined as, above all else, a system of labor designed to solve a labor shortage that existed in a lot of these colonies and largely geared toward the production of staple crops for sale. So in other words, commercial agriculture. Some of the top examples of key staple crops in the system would be sugar, which was overall the most important and most profitable Atlantic staple crop, as well as tobacco, rice, coffee, and others, including, especially in the 19th century, cotton. Another defining characteristic of this particular type of slavery is its overwhelming aspect of ethnic distinction. The fact that the masters were overwhelmingly whites of European descent, while the slaves were overwhelmingly blacks of, of course, African descent. Now, there were exceptions. There were relatively small numbers of Indians who were slaves, for example, especially in the early days of colonization. And there were small numbers of both Indians and Africans who, one way or another, ended up actually owning slaves. But these are noteworthy, relatively, actually quite small in the grand scheme of things, exceptions. The overwhelming tendency is the masters are white and the slaves are black. Now, I want to mention some things to keep in mind as we proceed. So I'm going to give some backstory in this episode. For the most part, this series is going to be on American chattel slavery, primarily as practiced from the 17th century through to the 1860s. Though, again, in this episode, the start-off episode, we're going to be looking a bit further back than that. And I just want to say that I understand that there are other sneakier forms of things that you could consider slavery, sneakier forms of forced labor and involuntary servitude, many of which still are around today. You could make a case for things like uh, military conscription, the income tax, 
prison convict labor. And of course, if you really wanted to, you could make a case for the latest and greatest form, if not of slavery, at least of indentured servitude, which of course are student loans. But please keep in mind, this series is specifically about old school American chattel slavery as primarily experienced by Africans. Again, understanding that, yes, there were also some enslaved Indians, and there certainly were also, as we've mentioned in a previous episode, some white indentured servants in these colonies who, while legally they were in a different category than African slaves, oftentimes in practice would experience conditions that weren't much different from slavery. I understand that. Please don't write in to tell me about some form of involuntary servitude that existed back then that's different from what I'm talking about, or one that still exists today, like being drafted into the military, because I promise you, I'm fully aware of it. That's just not what this series is about. Another thing to keep in mind, and this will come up again and again in many different forms throughout the series, I'm sure, is that slavery could be very differently experienced, depending on a whole host of variables, including things like What kind of work specifically is a slave engaged in? The majority of slaves were engaged, again, in some sort of staple crop agriculture, but there are plenty of exceptions to this. You can find slaves who are sort of urban artisans. You can find slaves who are sort of like housekeepers. I mean, there's all kinds of different things. So that's one variable. What kind of work are they doing? And then if, like most most slaves, they're engaged in agriculture, another variable is, What crop or crops are they involved with? That's going to have a huge impact on how they live, how they work, and all that stuff. Another variable, whether one is in a rural or urban setting, makes a big difference to how slavery is experienced. Also, different geographical regions, another variable. Another would be whether one was, if you were an agricultural laborer, whether you were, like most slaves in North America, on a small to mid-sized farm with relatively few slaves, or whether one was on a large plantation with a large number of slaves, perhaps even numbering in the hundreds. That's going to change one's experience of slavery. Also, how and to what degree are you supervised? Are you supervised a lot or relatively little? Were you supervised directly by your owner or by overseers of some sort working for your owner? Then, of course, there's the whole variable simply of the master and or overseer's character. Are they relatively benign? Again, as slave owners go, are they relatively benign? I'm not saying like they're they're making slavery good. I'm saying are they, you know, pretty mild on, on discipline and not too much of a dick to you? Or are they horribly abusive and sadistic? Or are they, as most of them no doubt were, somewhere in, in between those extremes? And then another key variable I'll mention is time period. American slavery was not a static institution, like any other human institution. It changed and evolved in a variety of ways over time. And keep that in mind, because a lot of times when people conceive in their own mind of what slavery was, or how it worked, or what it looked like, they oftentimes are only thinking of like one time and place. And they're not keeping in mind that we're talking an institution that existed for close to four centuries, at least in some parts of the New World. But, um... It's not static. And at least in America, in North America, our view of what slavery is is kind of tilted based on sources. For a variety of reasons, the bulk of sources that we have about the institution of slavery in the United States focuses specifically on the so-called antebellum era, meaning the era in between American independence in 1783 and the Civil War in the 1860s. And really... Within that, most of the sources are actually geared towards just the last decade or two that slavery existed. 
in part because one of, the, one of the most important sources that people, historians who specialize in the history of slavery will use to try and get a handle on what it was really like from the slave's perspective is oral histories collected from former slaves by researchers working for the federal government. This was done in the 1930s, though. It wasn't until the 1930s that some historians started to actually seek out people who had been slaves back before the Civil War and get their stories. And of course, when you're talking to ex-slaves in the 1930s, the only ex-slaves you're going to find who are still alive at that point are going to be those who experienced slavery just before the Civil War, like in the last days that slavery existed. And so their experience is by no means going to be typical of you know the hundreds of years that preceded that. And in addition to that, these are people in most cases who had only ever experienced slavery while still a child, which is also going to slant a lot of their perceptions and so on in certain ways. So this means that when most Americans, at least, think of slavery, their conception of slavery is overwhelmingly based on the era right before the Civil War even though that doesn't at all represent the majority of the time period that slavery was legal in North America. So anyway, those are just some things that I wanted to throw out there for your consideration and sort of to keep in mind as we proceed. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the prior history of slavery before this Atlantic world version of slavery started to come about in the 15th century. Looking at the grand scope of human history... Slavery can be found in so many different times and places and operating so differently in terms of the conditions of the slaves, the rules of the institution, what it is specifically the slaves are doing, how much freedom within the, the class of slave they may or may not have. And being a slave, I don't think anyone would argue is ever a good thing. But that said, not all forms of slavery are equally bad. Some are way worse than others historically. But it has to be pointed out, because sometimes you can find slaves in history in some society who look to be relatively comfortable and don't have that bad of a life. But you have to keep in mind, even slaves who lived, in general, a relatively good standard of living most of the time, and who perhaps even had a fair amount of freedom within their, their status as a slave on kind of a day-to-day -day basis. You know, for example, the Mamluk soldiers, who were the slave soldiers of some of the early Islamic states. Even s slaves like them, who appear to have it relatively good, they are not fully free, they're treated as less than fully human, and they're subject to someone else's will pretty much unconditionally, to the will of whoever's their master. And then all that that entails in terms of not having the basic rights that we have today, even though, again, it should go without saying, but I'll say it anyway, I'm fully aware of the ways in which the modern centralized state reduces the scope of human liberty. But that said, we don't have, at least most of us don't have an overseer who can inflict corporal punishment on us sort of at whim whenever he wants to. Now, slavery can actually be more tricky to define than you might think because of how differently it is operated in different times and different places. And of course, one can probably find exceptions to almost any definition you try to make for it. David Brian Davis, in his book about the history of slavery in the New World, which is entitled Inhuman Bondage, argues that dehumanization is a key aspect of slavery as an institution. Quote, slaves from the very beginning were perceived as dehumanized humans, end quote. Davis then sums up the longstanding traditional definition of slavery as follows, quote, 
Traditional definitions of slavery have stressed that the slave's person is the chattel property of another man or woman and thus subject to sale and other forms of transfer, that the slave's will is subject to the owner's authority, that the slave's labor or services are obtained through coercion, meaning that the owner's authority is always backed up by the whip or other instruments for inflicting pain, and that the master-slave relationship is beyond the limits of family relations, thus differentiating it from the slave-like sub- subordination of women and children in a patriarchal family, end quote. Davis also says that it's possible, perhaps even likely, that slavery was explicitly modeled on the domestication of animals. When you look at the similarities of the language and the techniques that are used of control, and the fact that in many societies, you really start to see widespread slavery emerge only after animals have been domesticated as well. Historian Orlando Patterson, in his book, Slavery and Social Death, which is a comparative study of slavery in a whole bunch of different societies, defines slavery as, quote, the permanent, violent, and personal domination of natally alienated and generally dishonored persons, end quote. David Bryan Davis, in discussing Patterson's definition, talks about the, quote, perpetual condition of dishonor, end quote, that slaves lived in as follows, quote, they provided a master class with a resource for parasitic and psychological exploitation. Even when slaves were purchased primarily for economic reasons, their degradation gave their masters a sense of honor, prestige, and superior identity, end quote. Now, after discussing the traditional definition of slavery and Orlando Patterson's definition of slavery, David Ryan Davis says that he would add to Patterson's definition two additional things. First, he would add the chattel property aspect of the traditional definition of slavery that I mentioned before to Patterson's definition. And second, he would add that the treatment of slaves is more like the treatment of animals than like the, tr- the treatment of non-slave humans. In fact, Davis discusses the concept of neoteny, uh, spelled N-E-O-T-E-N-Y, by the way. It's not a word I had come across before I read Davis's book. Neoteny in domesticated animals. Now, the the dictionary definition of neoteny is retention of juvenile features in adult animals. And Davis says something similar. He refers to neoteny as, quote, progressive juvenilization. In other words, the domesticated animals became more submissive than their wild counterparts, less fearful of strangers, and less aggressive, end quote. And these same approaches, he argues, were employed in various slave societies in regard to their human slaves. Masters were never able to domesticate slaves in a genetic sense, but clearly they wanted to do so. And clearly they did have some success psychologically, at least with many of their slaves. Now, slavery did exist, apparently, in at least some hunter-gatherer societies, but it was never on a large scale. Again, my argument is you can't have slavery on a wide scale for a long period of time without something like a state to enforce it. It was not until the coming of sedentary agriculture and quote-unquote civilization, which often is a euphemism for early states, that slavery really became a major institution in human society. The earliest slaves seem to have been prisoners of war and victims of kidnapping, but it wasn't long until slaves were being sought from other sources as well. As I'm sure many of you know, Slavery was widespread in many early civilizations. It seems to have been almost universal. Once you get a true civilization with 
settled, dense, large population societies with hierarchy and basically the earliest forms of states, you pretty much always have slavery. So you can find it in, just to name a few famous very early civilizations, Mesopotamian, Egyptian, Babylonian, and so on. And you can find some of the earliest law codes involving rules uh, of how to treat slaves and how slaves should be treated. And, and not just slaves, but anyone who interacts with slaves potentially could have their conduct prescribed or pre- prescribed or proscribed by law. So for an example of that, the famous Code of Hammurabi prescribed the death penalty for anyone who helped a slave to escape from slavery. Now, while many of these early societies got slaves externally through things like war, many of them also sought slaves on a large scale internally from their own existing population. And it seems that one of the major sources of slaves in the ancient world was what David Bryan Davis refers to as, quote, the main form of birth control throughout antiquity, end quote, by which he means the abandonment of unwanted babies, something which was tragically very common in the ancient world. It's just, you know, a brutal, a brutal time, a brutal place. This was considered a normal way to deal with an unwanted child. Just leave them out, um, you know, on a hillside or in the woods or whatever. And while certainly the elements or wild animals or what have you would often claim uh, many of these babies, there were also others who would go out to certain areas that were known to be used for this purpose, for abandoning unwanted babies, and would collect the babies and then would raise them for the purpose of having a slave, either used for oneself or to sell. Now, by the time you start getting really sophisticated civilizations, slavery had been around so long that it was generally not questioned. And some of the greatest ancient early philosophers included defenses or justifications of slavery in their works. So, for example, Aristotle rather famously believed that some people were just natural slaves. They were just inherently intended by nature to serve and to have no independent will of their own. And he argued that it was better for everybody, slave and free, that the natural slave type people be slaves. It seems likely that Aristotle mistook symptoms of having been enslaved for the cause. So in other words, Aristotle probably saw and interacted with slaves and they seemed to be submissive and weak and so on. From that, he concluded, oh, these people were submissive and weak. That's why they're slaves. Rather than thinking that that's actually a consequence of their enslavement, right? That uh, had they been born and raised under very different circumstances, they might actually not be submissive and weak and seemingly dumb. And of course, then there's the fact that slaves often would play dumb because it was a great way to kind of protect themselves. If you were a slave, you would want your master to think you were not that bright. That way he wouldn't suspect you of very much. You could probably get away with more if your master doesn't think you're all that bright. And of course, Aristotle wasn't alone. The vast majority of ancient philosophers never really questioned slavery, with the exception of, I think, some of the cynics and some of the Stoics. So slavery continued to be just an accepted institution in pretty much every civilization for millennia. Interestingly, the 5th century Code of Justinian in Roman law said, quote, Slavery is an institution of the law of nations by which, contrary to nature, a person is subjected to the dominion of another, end quote. As David Bryan Davis points out, this is the only case in this particular legal code in which a law of nations is admitted to be contradictory of natural law. Of course, as many of you probably know, the Bible is contradictory on the issue of slavery. There are actually a bunch of passages that sanction it and give guidelines for the proper uh, treatment of slaves and, and so on, for example, in Leviticus. But then there are other sections, uh, most notably 
probably the Exodus story, that have inspired anti-slavery activists and also slaves uh, seeking their freedom. And then, of course, there are at least some passages in the New Testament that seem to have kind of a liberationist bent as well. By the way, looking ahead to the United States in the decades just prior to the Civil War, I'll point out here, and I'll probably get into it more in the future, that both ardent defenders and ardent opponents of slavery, for the most part, with the exception of a few free-thinking abolitionists, for the most part, both opponents and proponents of slavery considered themselves to be devoutly Christian. And both sides frequently would quote scripture in order to support their side of the issue. The very influential early Christian theologian St. Augustine urged masters to be humane with their slaves, but he did accept slavery as a part of the world because he saw the world as being so depraved because of mankind's imperfection. He referred to this as the city of man, in contrast to the city of God where everything's good and wonderful and so on. So basically, St. Augustine's view of this, as in so many other things, was this world is just so corrupted and depraved and horrible that pretty much there's just going to be a certain amount of shit happens. And slavery is one of those shit happens. You don't look to this world for good stuff and justice. You look to the next world. That was that was his take on a lot of these things. In most ancient societies, slaves were less than half of the population, less than 50%. And in a lot of ancient societies, they rarely performed agricultural labor as their primary task. Most agriculture in most early ancient civilizations was done by free peasants for a long time. Now, this changed somewhat with the Greeks, where the yeoman farmers would sometimes own small numbers of slaves to help them work their small farms. Some historians characterize classical Greece as the first genuine slave society, as opposed to just a society with slaves. By slave society is meant a society whose economy is significantly dependent on slave labor to be as productive as it is. And ironically, it was the labor of those slaves that allowed the Greek citizens in polises like Athens to have the freedom and the leisure time to actively participate in the government of their state. As David Brian Davis puts it, quote, If the ancient Greeks hold the distinction of having created democracy, they also came to see slave labor as absolutely central to their entire economy and way of life, end quote. Thus, concepts of freedom and democracy were in part built on and enabled by the facts of slavery. And one can find a, a similar situation in America. For example, in Revolutionary-era Virginia, in which many of the most eloquent proponents of personal liberty, people like Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and Patrick Henry, were in fact major slave owners. By the way, ancient Greece also shows us one of the most brutal and oppressive systems of slavery that has ever existed. And of course, I'm talking about the Helot system in ancient Sparta. And look that up if you're not familiar with it. It's absolutely horrific. And one of the interesting things about that system, aside from its just absolute brutality, is that the Helots were fellow Greeks whom the Spartans had conquered and enslaved. And thus they were of the same basic ethno ethnocultural group, or at least what we would consider the same ethnocultural group, as the Spartans who were the ones enslaving and oppressing them. And this is an illustration of the fact that slavery and racial difference don't always go together. They can, but they don't always. In fact, though the Greeks and then later the Romans built what almost anyone would consider slave societies, where slave labor was a massive part of their economy, 
And though many of their slaves would have come from quote-unquote barbarian ethnic groups, nonetheless their slavery for the most part was really non-racist. Rome was the next major slave society in Western history, and at its peak, perhaps 30% of the Roman Empire's entire population were actually slaves. Slave rebellions of various sizes happened repeatedly in the history of the Roman Empire, and as a result, Roman practices against rebellious slaves were absolutely brutal. And for a narrative of the largest slave uprisings in the Roman world, including the famous rebellion led by Spartacus, I would refer you to, if you've not already checked it out, episodes one and two of Daniele Bellelli's History on Fire podcast, and I'll link to that in the show notes. The Romans, like people in the American South many, many centuries later, understood the constant threat they faced from their slaves. And the Romans even had a proverb all slaves are enemies. And as a result, like I said, Roman punishments against rebellious slaves were brutal, and they were also collective. They would execute and mutilate a whole bunch of slaves for the, for the crimes of a single one. For example, if a master of a household was murdered by one of his slaves, Roman law dictated that every single slave in that household must be put to death. But again, Roman slavery didn't really have a rigid racial element to it, and slaves of almost every ethnic group available could be found in the Roman Empire, including everything from blonde-haired and red-headed people from Northern Europe to black Africans and just about every shade of person in between. So that that's just a, a brief look at some of the earlier versions of slavery that then later had an influence on slavery in America. And of course, over the course of the medieval era into the early modern era, in many parts of Europe, slavery was done away with. And then you had serfdom, which is similar, but not exactly the same thing. But by the early modern era, by the time that some European countries were exploring and colonizing the other side of the world, at least in most of Western Europe, serfdom had also ended. Now, this is not to say that the lower classes in Western Europe were, you know, liberated and, and all that kind of stuff, but that there wasn't flat-out serfdom anymore. And it was around this time when, in most of Western Europe, slavery was gone or going away, and so was serfdom, that these same European states got involved in what would become the Atlantic slave trade and the Atlantic slave labor system. And the country in Europe that really led the way in getting into all this stuff was Portugal. In the 15th century, European explorers opened up contact with two parts of the world to European contact that, that had not been in touch with them before, I should say. And those two parts of the world are, of course, the Americas in the Western Hemisphere and Sub-Saharan Africa. Europeans had had lots of contact with North Africa for you know millennia, but they had had very, very little direct contact with sub-Saharan Africa until the 15th century. Ironically and, and tragically, none of the European colonies that were eventually set up in the New World, with the possible exception of South Carolina, were intended at their founding to be economically dependent on slave labor. But nonetheless, the way things worked out in history and people taking advantages of the opportunities they had, many of the American colonies went that way towards full-on slave societies, sooner or later, one way or the other. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that the Portuguese were the first European nation to get heavily involved in the slave trade, because they were the first Europeans to go on long-distance sea voyages into the Atlantic Ocean 
for the purposes of trade and exploration and colonization in this sort of early modern era. And it really started in the 1400s when Prince Henry the Navigator got the Portuguese heavily involved in sailing down around the coast of Africa. And the Portuguese were way ahead of everyone else in this. In 1444, they reached all the way to Senegal, Senegal, and then in 1471, reached all the way to Ghana. And then in 1486, a Portuguese captain named Bartolomeu Diaz rounded the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa. And just over a decade after that, the famous Portuguese explorer Vasco da Gama went all the way from Portugal to India, sailing down all the way around Africa into the Indian Ocean. And in 1500, a Portuguese expedition accidentally discovered Brazil. Legacy of that, plus the Treaty of Tordesillas, is the reason why Brazil is the one part of Latin America that speaks Portuguese instead of Spanish. Now, as the Portuguese explored and traded with and set up little outposts in the west coast of Africa, they discovered an already existing African slave trade between different African states and also extending northward and eastward all the way to the Middle East. An African slave trade that had been going on for hundreds of years before the Portuguese showed up. But once they showed up, they plugged into it in the 1400s, and by the 1500s, they were plugged into it in a huge way. Savvy Portuguese captains and businessmen realized the money that could be made from trafficking in African slaves and from using those slaves to produce products that Europeans very much wanted and would pay dearly for but could not produce at home. And the biggest of these, for pretty much this entire era that slavery was a big deal, was of course sugar. The island of Madeira in the Atlantic, west of Africa, became a Portuguese colony in the 15th century, and sugar came rapidly became its staple crop. The Portuguese quickly figured out the best way to grow and harvest this sugar is using slaves imported from Africa. Just a little bit later, on the island of Sao Tome in the Gulf of Guinea, the Portuguese began growing sugar using slaves as well. Now, these operations and others that were set up shortly after were part of a growing genuinely global economy in this Atlantic world. David Brian Davis describes it in these words, quote, Even in its early stages, the Atlantic slave system foreshadowed certain features of our modern global economy. One sees international investment of capital in distant colonial regions, where the slave trade resulted in extremely low labor costs to produce goods for a transatlantic market. With respect to consumerism, it is now clear that slave-produced sugar, rum, coffee, tobacco, and chocolate greatly altered the European diet. Apart from their damaging effects ranging from sugar-induced tooth decay to lung cancer, these luxuries helped to shape, by the late 18th century, a consumer mentality among the masses, especially in England, so that workers became more pliant and willing to accept factory discipline in order to afford their luxury stimulants." End quote. And other historians have argued that it was the stimulants themselves in the form of things like coffee, or in England especially tea, things like chocolate as well, and then adding sugar to things like tea and coffee, that really drove a lot of England's development and industrialization, that helped spark ideas amongst the English elite, and that helped the English working classes put up with and deal with the long hours toiling in a factory or something like that. Now, I just have to say, I, for one, am all for average people, you know, consumers, the masses, whatever you want to call it, having access to a greater variety of goods. I'm not one of these people that thinks that having access to decent stuff is a horrible thing that'll make you, you know, decadent and immoral and so on. And I'm definitely all for global trade. 
but I'm for truly free trade in every sense of the word free. I'm not for a mercantilist state managed system of trade as these imperial systems were at this time. And of course, I'm not for trade in which the masses in one part of the world have access to more goods at the expense of the misery of millions of enslaved and abused laborers. And that's an important distinction to make. A lot of relatively recent scholarship, especially that of historian John Thornton, has showed that in the early days of the transatlantic slave trade, African kingdoms were actually militarily and economically strong enough to participate in these exchanges with the Europeans, essentially as equals. The Africans may not have had all the same technologies as the Europeans, but they actually had a lot of what the Europeans had in the 14 and 1500s. And in addition to that, the, the advantages that the Europeans had were often somewhat negated or entirely negated by the fact that the Africans sort of had the home term advantage, home team advantage, right? Home field advantage, for lack of a better term. It's certainly true that Africans at this time didn't have ships that were capable of truly long distance voyages, but they did have effective inland and coastal vessels, and they really could give the Europeans a good fight if they wanted to. And they did on some occasions, by the way. For example, when the Portuguese attacked Senegal very early on in their African voyages, they actually got their asses kicked, and they quickly realized they couldn't just operate by brute force. They realized they would have to make trade deals with the African rulers and states they encountered instead of just trying to conquer them, that that flat out wouldn't work. And it's really not until several centuries later that Europeans had enough of a power and technology edge that they could start to think about dictating the terms of their interactions with Africans. And really, um, the facts of tropical disease put a limit on how much Europeans could, could uh, operate in Africa for a long time anyway. By the way, the same is also true to, to some extent in the early days of European interactions with New World native peoples, you know, with the Indians as well the Europeans really didn't have that huge of an edge overall over some of these societies. Though in that case, in the instance of the New World peoples, the disease factor was something that worked um, more against the Indians. It eventually took such a toll on the Indians that when you combine it with European advances in technology, they were, after a while, severely at a disadvantage. But for some time, there was, there was something closer to a balance of power than you might think. So the point is, the Europeans during this time period were simply not strong enough to conquer the African kingdoms, and so as a result, the Africans and Europeans engaged in trade. And the African kingdoms were in fact strong enough to impose their own duties and taxes and regulations and conditions on these exchanges. Now you might be thinking, like, didn't these Africans who were selling other enslaved Africans to white people, didn't they have some sort of a feeling of solidarity? And the answer is no. There's not much, if any, evidence that there was a feeling of sort of pan-African or black solidarity among the Africans who were selling other enslaved Africans to Europeans. They identified by their tribe, by their uh, particular kingdom and so on. And so they felt no compunction about selling other Europeans uh, sorry, other Africans, uh, to Europeans. Now, there were goods that either side wanted in this trade. There were things the Europeans wanted, and there were things the Africans wanted. The Europeans, of course, the number one most valuable thing they wanted was slaves, but there were other goods they also would uh, make deals for, gold and things like this. And what the Africans 
wanted and bought from Europe were things like, first and foremost, cloth, also metal and iron manufactured goods. By the way, the Africans did make their own metal goods at this time in West Africa, but the European goods, they were different. They were sometimes considered to the Africans exotic or fancier, and they were considered as supplements to what the Africans could make for themselves. The Africans also wanted from the Europeans a variety of non-utilitarian items, what you might consider prestige items, things like jewelry, for example, or exotic to Africans, alcoholic beverages. You have to understand that there were a few things the Africans couldn't make for themselves, but a lot of what they traded for from the Europeans, theoretically they could make, or at least make a version of it, but they perceived the European goods as being exotic and thus cool and prestigious. In the same way, by the way, that a lot of Asian goods were seen in Europe at the very same time. So you have to understand this acquisition by the Europeans of African slaves was done through trade, not through like Europeans actually running into the interior of Africa and catching slaves. Again, they plugged into a slave trading system that had already existed for many, many years. They just added an additional uh, market to it, I guess you would say. Now, the Portuguese dominated the Atlantic slave trade from then on into the 17th century. And during that time period, most New World colonies, whatever flag they flew, bought their slaves from Portuguese ships. And then the Dutch West India Company began heavily cutting into Portuguese Atlantic trading operations in the 1630s and 40s. And before long, the Dutch had taken control of much of the slave trade, as they did with many of the important trade routes around the world during the 17th century. Like the Portuguese, they found they simply were not strong enough, not able to impose their will on the African kingdoms, or even make really effective forays into the African interior. But like the Portuguese, they found they could have these sort of mutual back and forth business interactions. The Dutch didn't get to dominate the Atlantic slave trade for too long, though. By the second half of the 17th century, the British were starting to get in on the action, and eventually they even fought several naval and trade wars against the Dutch for dominance of certain global trade routes and resources, including the Atlantic slave trade. Britain's dominance of the Atlantic slave trade was pretty well cemented by 1713, which is when Spain granted to Britain what they called the Asiento, meaning the monopoly to ship slaves to Spain's extensive New World colonies. The Asiento had previously been held by the Portuguese, by the way. And the British remained the biggest players, the overwhelmingly dominant player, really, in the Atlantic slave trade for almost a century until 1808, when they in fact abolished the trade. And from then on until the end of New World slavery in the latter part of the 19th century, the Portuguese moved back in and ran it. As a result, when you look at the whole history of the Atlantic slave trade, a little bit over four centuries of it, Portuguese ships, in fact, transported more African slaves altogether across the ocean than did ships under any other nation's flag. Now, again, it deserves to be stressed because it goes against what a lot of people might think. But European and African states, at least when it came to things going on in West Africa, had a rough balance of power in terms of trying to control the trade in ways to their own advantage. So, for example, European traders to operate in West Africa had to pay substantial customs fees and taxes to the states of West Africa, and they had to do things like give gifts to rulers and sort of bribe people sometimes in order to continue doing business in West Africa. 
and African rulers could and did, at times, halt the trade when they so chose. So they could bring pressure to bear on the Europeans. The fact of the matter is that when it came to the slave trade, Africans controlled every aspect of it up until the point that the slaves were loaded onto the boats. As historian John Thornton puts it, quote, the Atlantic slave trade was the outgrowth of internal slavery, end quote. And by internal, he means slavery already existing in Africa. However, in practice, slavery ended up functioning differently in European-run societies than it did in Africa, thanks to differences in institutions and customs. For example, in African law, slaves fulfilled the equivalent role that land did in Europe. They were the primary form of private property that produced revenue. Because in Africa, slaves could be owned privately, but, an but land usually could not. In African kingdoms, land, especially agricultural land, was owned corporately, meaning owned by the state, owned by the ruler. This is part of why there was such an extensive slave trade in Africa even before Europeans showed up. Because of the way that their institutions and practices had evolved, they saw land as not being individually owned, but slaves could be individually owned. So as John Thornton puts it, quote, the legal basis for wealth in Africa lay in the idea of transferring ownership of people, end quote. The largest percentage of African slaves who were sold to Europeans were those taken in war. One African state would fight against one of its neighbors, and during the process, as, as they had been doing for centuries, capture some of the enemies and enslave them. And then some of these would be sold to Europeans, although other slaves were from other sources as well. As John Thornton puts it in his book, Africa and Africans in the Making of the Atlantic World, quote, African participation in the slave trade was voluntary and under the control of African decision makers. Europeans possessed no means, either economic or military, to compel African leaders to sell slaves, end quote. Of course, it was voluntary only in the collective sense, right? I mean, we should point out it wasn't voluntary on the part of the individuals who were actually enslaved, but it was voluntary on the part of the African governments and rulers who were selling them. So in other words, the reason that Africans were willing to sell their slaves to Europeans were internal. Now, this contradicts the impression that many people seem to have that Europeans were somehow solely responsible for this whole situation. Now, certainly they deserve a lot of the blame because they're buying up all these slaves for all these centuries, but it's not like they showed up and then, you know, just started enslaving people and so on. Like there, there was another side to the transaction and it, <laughs> it wasn't just the Europeans showing up and catching slaves on their own. As Dave and Brian Davis puts it, quote, there has long been a widespread mythology claiming that Europeans were the ones who physically enslaved Africans. As if small groups of sailors who were highly vulnerable to tropical diseases and who had no supply lines to their homelands could kidnap some 11 to 12 million Africans, end quote. Now, slavery was getting established in the New World early on. The Portuguese, of course, started setting it up in some of the Atlantic islands that they encountered, and then also a little bit later in Brazil. And when the Spanish began taking over Caribbean islands following Columbus's voyages, they generally tried to enslave the natives that they found. This caused controversy within the Spanish government and society, as some people, most famously the priest Bartolomé de las Casas, argued that the enslavement of the natives in the New World was wrong and needed to stop. Although tragically, las Casas and I think others who argued against enslaving the natives of the New World unfortunately ad advocated increased importation of Af African slaves, 
into Spain's colonies as the solution to the labor shortage in lieu of enslaving the natives. So Las Casas, when I first learned about Las Casas and read some things by him, I was like, wow, here's a great humanitarian ahead of his time. Look at this. All the way back in the 1500s, he's calling out the Spanish government and the Spanish conquistadors for what they're doing to the Indians. That's great. Here's an actual humanitarian hero. And then eventually I came across the fact that he advocated shipping more Africans to Spain's colonies instead. Like, that's the solution. Well, don't enslave these Indians. Uh, What you need to do is ship over some more black people to enslave, you know. Now, while the enslavement of natives continued to take place for quite a while in Spain's colonies and later in the colonies of many other Europeans, uh, other European nations colonies as well, ultimately African slaves would prove to be a better source of labor for the, for these purposes for a variety of reasons that I'm sure we'll talk about later. Now, I want to talk a little bit about racism and where it may or may not have come from and what relation it has to do with slavery here. When looking at the phenomenon of Europeans transporting Africans to the New World and then working them as slaves there, you have to ask the question, historically, sort of which came first, racist attitudes or the actual practice of race-based slavery? In other words, did some sort of pre-existing anti-black racism predispose Europeans to be happily willing to purchase and exploit African slaves? Or did profitability motivate the slave trade and the establishment of slave societies in the New World and racist ideologies only evolved later in order to explain and justify all this after the fact? Also, by the way, did the experience of watching the wretched conditions of many enslaved blacks caused whites to adopt racist attitudes, sort of like Aristotle mistaking the consequences of enslavement for its causes? This is a very complex question to answer, and historians who are far more expert on the history of New World slavery have spilled a lot of ink debating different aspects of these questions. Now, again, just to stress, slavery and racial prejudice don't automatically go together. Orlando Patterson, in his comparative study of different slave societies, which is entitled Slavery and Social Death, found that in about a quarter of the 57 slave societies he looked at, ethnic differences between master and slave were not a significant part of the institution. So, again, slavery and racial prejudice don't automatically go together. You can easily have one without the other. As we mentioned, in many ancient societies, such as the Roman Empire— Slavery was not attached to any particular ethnic group. There were slaves of all kinds of colors. And on the other side, virulent racism has and can and absolutely has existed in many societies in which there is no institution of slavery. So, for example, there was plenty of anti-black racism in the northern United States throughout American history, even in states like Illinois and Ohio that never had slavery at any point in their history. Even some abolitionists had attitudes towards blacks that today we would consider racist. In other words, some abolitionists thought slaves should be freed, but that blacks still were naturally inferior to whites in some way. And furthermore, you can make the case looking at the South that some forms of anti-black racism actually increased after the ending of slavery. For example, legal segregation was actually more rigid in the late 19th and early 20th centuries than it had been back before the Civil War when slavery was still legal in the South. So slavery and racism don't necessarily go together, but obviously in the case of Atlantic New World slavery, they did. So where did it come from? Well, David Bryan Davis in Inhuman Bondage explores a lot of possible origins for some of these attitudes. 
And one of the things he discusses is in European history, there does seem to be a history of upper class people characterizing the lower classes, especially the serfs back when there was serfdom as being in the words of David Brian Davis, quote, intrinsically lazy, childlike, licentious, and incapable of life without authoritative direction, end quote, including cases where the serfs are of the same basic ethnic group as the masters. Furthermore, you can find such lower class Europeans being characterized by their elites as darker than the ruling classes. Basically, that's due to the fact that the lower class people work in the sun a lot more and are also dirtier because of their basic poverty. So there was a history among European ruling elites of associating darker appearance with lower class status and then attaching also to the lower class status these stereotypes of being lazy, childlike, etc. Now, today we think of people who have a good tan as being healthy and attractive looking. But in medieval Europe, those things were considered markers for manual labor, which was something that the elites considered well beneath them. And so a lot of the things that were considered marks of attractiveness back then were basically things that gave evidence that one did not engage in physical labor. Now, in addition to that, the color black itself has long had negative connotations in many cultures for many centuries. Many religious texts in Christianity, Islam, even Zoroastrianism speak of black as being the color of evil and white as being the color of good. And so it wasn't a big stretch for European slave owners to combine this with the previously mentioned association of darker skin with lower class status and start to form what we would consider racist attitudes. Europeans also seem to have gleaned a fair amount of their racist attitudes towards black Africans from Muslims. It was Muslims who, prior to European contact with sub-Saharan Africa, were the main people buying and selling blacks as slaves. And they seem to have developed attitudes that identified black African ethnic status with the lowliest forms of slavery. Not that blacks were the only slaves in the Islamic world, but they were often uh, characterized by many many prominent Muslims of the time period as being like the lowest of the low. Islamic writers often described blacks in terms that were very similar to the ways that Aristotle had described a natural slave. They were described as people who were only fit for that status. Early Islamic writers sometimes even explicitly compared black Africans to animals and developed a lot of the same exact stereotypes that later were applied to blacks by Europeans. So, for example, David Brian Davis reports that some medieval Muslims described blacks as, quote, ugly, stupid, dishonest, frivolous, lighthearted, and foul-smelling, but gifted with a sense of musical rhythm and dominated by unbridled sexual lust, symbolized by the male's supposedly large penis. Point by point, these stereotypes of medieval Muslim writers resemble those of the later Spaniards, Portuguese, English and Americans, end quote. And Davis cites a bunch of other documentary examples of this attitude as well. So there's a pretty good amount of evidence that at least some of Europeans' anti-black racist ideas came from the prior beliefs of that on the part of Muslims. Some Europeans also interpreted the so-called curse of Ham, which is in the Bible in Genesis chapter 9, as validating the enslavement of blacks. And you can find white Southerners, even like right before the American Civil War, talking about the curse of Ham. If you're not familiar with that story, um, real briefly, the story is that 
one of Noah's sons named Ham supposedly looked at Noah while Noah was passed out naked and drunk. And for that offense, Ham's descendants were cursed to be slaves. So again, this is often cited by defenders of slavery. They would make the case that, oh yeah, Africans are descendants of Ham, somehow they know this, and therefore they're fit for slavery. Some defenders of slavery also looked to the scriptures to the Cain and Abel story for justification. And they said that after Cain murdered his brother Abel, God had cursed him with a mark in some way. And these people would interpret that the mark God put on Cain was dark skin. And therefore they argued blacks were the descendants of Cain. And therefore, because of Cain's crime, deserved to be enslaved. Also, specifically on the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal, who were so involved early on in shipping black slaves across the Atlantic and then working them in colonies over there. On the Iberian Peninsula, the mold for some of these racist ideologies also may have come originally from anti-Semitism. During the era of the Spanish Inquisition, many Jews converted to Christianity. They were known as conversos. But many Gentiles in Spain and Portugal never trusted them, even though they had converted, and they began to think of them and speak of them and write of them as being ethnically distinct. And they often spoke about it in terms of blood. They didn't have the language of DNA yet to describe it, but they're speaking of it in primitive versions of that, talking about the blood of those people are contaminated. And they were often very phobic about Gentiles interbreeding with, with conversos. So... One can find Spanish documents that clearly show the link between anti-Jewish and anti-black prejudice. So, for example, in 1604, a Spanish biographer of the Emperor Charles V wrote, quote, Who can deny that in the descendants of Jews, there persists and endures the evil inclination of their ancient ingratitude and lack of understanding, just as in the Negroes, there persists the inseparability of their blackness? End quote. As David Brian Davis puts it, quote, whatever borrowings occurred between cultures, it is clear that by the time the Spanish and Portuguese began to conquer and settle in the New World, chattel slavery had taken on deep racial connotations. End quote. And sadly, many Enlightenment thinkers in Europe in the 18th century, including such Leading lights as David Hume, Voltaire, and Immanuel Kant, to name just a few, gave anti-black racism a scientific veneer at the time. Though to be fair, there were other Enlightenment intellectuals who did oppose both slavery and racism. This pseudo-scientific racism endured long after slavery ended and persisted well into the 20th century. So, for example, here's an excerpt from the 1911 edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Quote, Mentally, the Negro is inferior to the white. The remark of F. Manetta, made after a long study of the Negro in America, may be taken as generally true of the whole Negro race. The Negro children were sharp, intelligent, and full of vivac vivacity, but on approaching the adult period a gradual change set in. The intellect seemed to become clouded, animation giving place to a sort of lethargy, briskness, yielding to indolence. The arrest or even deterioration in mental development is no doubt very largely due to the fact that after puberty, sexual matters take the first place in the Negro's life and thoughts, end quote. Though by the second half of the 20th century, all these sorts of notions were pretty much across the board, wildly discredited among legitimate, legitimate scientists, unfortunately, 
some of these sorts of ideas seem to be making a comeback, this sort of pseudoscience of race, among at least some factions of the emerging so-called alt-right. Well, that's where we'll stop for this episode, kind of getting the ball rolling and setting the stage. Next time, we'll get into the establishment of slave societies in the European colonies in the New World, looking mostly, though perhaps not exclusively, at North America, as the bulk of this series is going to be looking at slavery in British North America and, after the Revolutionary War happens, in the United States. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Make sure to check out my website, profcj.org. That's profcj.org to find the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While there, you can also email subscribe to the website over on the right-hand side. You'll see a place to enter your email address, and if you sign up there, you'll simply get an email alert every time I post something new to my website. I promise you won't get any junk or spam or anything like that from me. For any correspondence, please feel free to email me at the email address profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with and follow me and the show on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can subscribe to the podcast in a variety of ways, including iTunes and Stitcher. If you like the show, there are multiple ways you can help it out. One simply is to spread the word about it any way you have available to you, whether social media, online discussion postings, word of mouth, or whatever, to people that you think might like the show. Also, please consider leaving a review or a rating in venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. There are also multiple ways you can help out the show financially. One is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash p-r-o-f-c-j. And sign up to support the show on a per episode basis. If you do that for any amount, I will thank you by name in the next episode that I record. And if you've signed up for at least a dollar per episode, you'll have access to special monthly bonus episodes via Patreon that are available no place else. You can also visit profcj.org slash donate to donate to the show via PayPal or Bitcoin. And you can also help the show out financially by doing your Amazon shopping after first going through any of the affiliate links found on my website. And if you do that, I will get a small commission from Amazon at no cost to you. So thanks again for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof. CJ, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future. (laughs) 